You are listening to part two of a conversation with Ben Parsons, recorded in May 2015, for Childhood, History, and Critique on behalf of the Society for the History of Children and Youth. In, in the essay that I, I wrote for this episode, and I shared this, this with you in advance, I, it, yeah. I give a, attention to this children's petition that comes in the late, uh, Couple yes, of different yes. version in the late 17th century, and I, and this is the earliest document I've been able to find where uh, a rather strong argument about curtailing and amending the rights of masters to corporally punish yes. students. When you read that, what did you see in terms of continuities and changes from the earlier discourse? Well, one. One thing that did, did sort of um, immediately leap out to me, I'm trying really hard to avoid using the uh, expression struck me, um, and just become <laughs> kind of very self-aware uh, of the vocabulary use, but um, um, was the sort of early section, well, I mean, a, a number of things I found quite interesting in that, but the early section um, referring to there being no sort of external uh, standard for punishment, that is kind of uh, it's it's the the master is the sole arbiter, and it seems that the author's arguing that it's sort of the whole. I mean, there's all this this reference to kind of self pleasure. I think you picked up on in your your paper as well. Um, yeah. The master is pleasing himself, and that will obviously make him deliberately seek out um, in a very kind of predatory way things to punish because kind of that's enjoyable. So this kind of sense that punishment is born out of no kind of exterior sense of justice or right and wrong. It's just purely almost subjective. Um, you know, those standards only exist within the, within the master's mind. But also the fact that part of that is his kind of emotional state as well. That he's, they also refer to um, whoever the author is. Um, but I don't know. It might be Roger Lestrange himself, I suppose. Um, they refer to sort of the role that anger plays in that as well, referring back to Plutarch's sort of uh, um, comments on beating. Uh, the idea that there is this kind of, you know, when they think about the the master's mind um, as he's carrying out punishment, on the one hand, it's sort of sealed off from anything external. On the other hand, it's kind of guided by emotion as much as reason. That struck me as being very, there we go, I've fallen into the trap already, um, as being very kind of resonant with a lot of the earlier debates that are happening in the Middle Ages. Uh, well, not necessarily debates, more kind of prescriptions that are drawn up about punishment. Because uh, a lot of those do direct their attention very no noticeably to the, um, the sort of internal faculties of the master and how the master's mind must be when he's carrying out his beating. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, um, you know, that seems to be the kind of platform, the kind of origin from which correct beating must sort of proceed. Uh, one of the kind of uh, um, strongest examples of this is probably the right... So Vincent de Beauvais, who was writing in the middle of the 13th century, and he dedicates quite a lot of space to how beating should be carried out effectively. And he seems to kind of ritualise it um, to sort of quite a great extent. And one of the, the main pieces of advice he gives, which seems to kind of act as a trigger that enables everything else to fall into place, is that the master has to wait. He has to observe it as a kind of temple, sort of, kind of time limit or sort of delay. 
between the offence and actually carrying out the punishment. Never, he says, never carry out the punishment straight away when you're uh-huh. kind of acting um, purely in the kind of impetuous sort of flush of emotion. You have to set up that kind of uh, deferral, and that will in turn enable the master to be governed more by proportion and reason and uh, modestia, as the term he actually uses. All of those things can kind of be brought into play as kind of mechanisms to inform the, the correct exercise of punishment rather than kind of immediate sort of impulsive sort of lashing out. And you find yeah. kind of variations of this um, all over the place. And um, that would speak to a, 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 a stream of, of continuity mm-hmm. in, in the importance of subjectivity and to not overdo yeah. the emphasis on the rise of a, a stronger notion of subjectivity in the early modern period that yeah, that there's, yeah, a, yeah. That there's a central concern with with a subject, even if that is a, a changing thing and a historical thing. Yeah. Earlier and perhaps always, it may be a cardinal feature of of humanity implied in all representation. I mean, certainly the uh, a source like Van Son um, certainly suggests that the the master is a subject position mm-hmm. in the system, no less than um, his pupils. You know, he he has to form his role correctly within the sort of milieu he inhabits rather than um, on a kind of improvisational sort of ad hoc basis. You know, he has to follow a, a strict set of rules within the kind of ideology of the classroom. He cannot just respond in that kind of impulsive, sort of naked way. He has to kind of... Play. I mean, he says, for instance, that um, punishment always has to happen before an audience. So... Mm. I mean, this is very, very Foucauldian, really. He's talking about the kind mm-hmm. of maximising the kind of effectiveness and the efficiency of punishment, really. You know, this is a, so each single blow on a pupil will be witnessed by the whole class. So effectively, you're punishing everyone collectively with the least sort of expenditure of energy, I suppose. Um, and again, that is something that he deliberately says make, um, this kind of pause makes possible. You know, once you've, the master has kept back his arm in order not to kind of laugh lash out immediately, then um, it allows him to kind of orchestrate a sort of punishment as a spectacle rather than kind of something that may only take place between him and the single pupil. So I think that that perhaps is quite appropriate, that kind of um, looking at that, that, that pause that he, um, he advocates as being a sort of space in which, you know, the master can reconnect with that subject position. Sort of just a, a thought that just occurred to me is who wrote this anonymous document and and we don't know uh, uh, at least I don't know and and any uh, there's only a, a few secondary sources that refer to in, in one article really on this but the fact that that the anonymous author chose to call it a children's petition yeah and now how do we read that well I I did find that quite peculiar I mean the um, I mean, this this is looking backward a bit further, but what it sort of reminded me of most um, forcibly was um, I don't know if you've, you've come across Simon Fisher's Supplication for the Beggars that was written in the early part of the 16th century. And I mean, you know, Simon Fish was, I think, a Cambridge or Oxford graduate. He was certainly not a beggar in his own right at all. <laughs> and it's talking about disenfranchisement. Franchisement of um, large numbers of the clergy. I mean, in some respects, we argue that it had quite a 
degree of influence on Henry VIII's sort of later policies. But that that kind of idea, um, that sort of appeal in the name of a mass of people, actually, you can't think that it goes back further to the Middle Ages. The 14th century text called the Song of the Husbandman, which although it's a that's a modern um, title that's applied, it is actually quite descriptive of its contents. Again, it, it claims to be we poor men. I don't know, that, that seems to be quite a kind of, again, if we're talking about continuity, that seems a different sort of, I mean, it's, it's a continuity that's been taken up and, and reconfigured in this particular document, but that, that idea of representing a kind of larger mass, and as you say, despite the fact that actually what is being vocalised is at best the opinion of a privileged few, yeah. that seems to be a kind of literary resource that's sort of already at hand. That's a fascinating set of connections. What I'm interested, what do you make of this passage from the children's petition that struck me as a point of contrast with some of the materials you've examined? The, under, the understanding will never be enlightened, the memory healed, or the invention quickened by stripes upon the flesh. So this attempt yes. to separate it, which is sort of it's, it, it seems to me to draw on a, a sort of Renaissance humanism. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's probably appropriate. Yeah, but as you say, I mean, there's clearly a line's being drawn here between flesh. And it's not body here, of course. It's flesh as something inert, something that is, that is just purely reduced to a kind of homogenous substance versus the kind of the, those aspects, those faculties of the, the self. Yeah, that the intellect so, is disembodied. Mm, the two things are not yeah, I mean, sort of yeah. square, don't overlap. Yeah, and 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 uh, they they precede this. The authors or the author precedes this by, you know, there's certainly a place for chastisement and for mm. punishment in from the point of view of the author. They're not saying that children and others shouldn't be struck, but th- th- their argument is is again compartmentalizing it in a way that seems to follow upon Renaissance humanism and, and yeah. to build upon it. And, and the argument is that chastisement is meat or is appropriate for sin yeah, or some, I mean, moral, it, some moral fault, but not for learning. Again, placing the intellect in a place outside of the moral, mm. political realm. I mean, yeah, it does, it does seem to be sort of compartmentalizing the self as much as anything that you know, the flesh and the mind. I mean, there's a very kind of uh, impermeable barrier set up between them here, which is which is it's not not something you do tend to find in the medieval discussions, where there is a, a sort of an ease with which traffic can pass from one to the other. I mean, one of the passages I mentioned in, in the article I sent to you, I don't know if you recall this, but, uh, it's my favourite uh, medieval statement, so I, I will do my best to crowbar it into every discussion. <laughs> is the, the commentary on Juvenal, which is attributed to um, William of Conch, yes. um, is commenting on Juvenal and uh, picks up a kind of rogue um, reference in the original text to uh, we've all, I think it's the passage about we've all uh, flinched a hand beneath the rod, mm-hmm. um, and then goes to this little um, disquisition of how exactly the rod should be used properly and why it should be used. So, so the author talks about whoever he happens to be uh, says that um, I have to try and quote from memory um, 
you can render it in English as um, the master strikes the pupil um, on the left hand because it has the hands close to the heart, which will mm-hmm. stir the, the blood and prevent the ingenium, the kind of mental faculty of invention, as we were talking about, um, from becoming too sluggish. It, it quickens the pulse, it sort of pushes the blood into the heart, quickens the the sort of circulation of blood throughout the body, and this in some way kind of restarts the kind of the ingenium, the mental faculty of invention or imagination when it's sort of threatening to stall as the uh, as the sort of uh, teacher's droning on and the, the, t- the pupil's getting bored, I suppose. So it's a kind of way of kind of jump-starting the, the pupil's mind by affecting that, by, you know, by, by striking them on the hand and affecting their blood. So there, there is kind of, you know, it's a series of biological interventions that actually leads to a kind of mental intervention. You know, this, the tutor's actually able to, to use the blood because it travels presumably all over the body as a way of getting at the... The, the sort of mind within the student, you know, it's not really seen as being much difference between the two. The two are sort of equally part of the same of the same series of processes. Whereas I think um, the child, the children's tradition, is, as you say, coming at it from quite a different quite a different standpoint. Um, yeah. That there is this division between flesh and mind. There's that's not there at all in the, the William McConch text. You know. Let me shift gears a bit. Maybe in my own article, in, in pointing to the majority position of corporal punishment, I undersell the fact that there's a lot more um, authority and kind and anti-corporal punishment position mm. in the world today and in the and 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 throughout the late 20th century, really than any other time. Yeah, that it's not just Sweden, that it's significant, powerful forces in Canada, in the United States, in the UK, particularly the European yeah. Union. The European Union as a political organization is is strongly, strongly opposed to the rights of parents and teachers to corporate yes. children. And that and and that I may be underselling that a bit and that it is that is that is significantly different than anything that I found in the medieval or early modern period. What are what's your response to that sense of change, or how do you read that modern change? I think it's more of a mutation than a change. And I think um, the, the well, on the one hand, the sort of the fact there is a a political um, institution which is opposed to. Um, I mean, I see. I'm perhaps more interested in the kind of resistance to those those calls by bodies such as the European Union. Um, I mean, living in the UK, uh, unfortunately, uh, I think I can I can see from kind of the, the way public discourse tends to, to flow here why there is resistance to um, the European Union's sort of calls to outlaw smacking. I remember there was quite a lot of um, discussion of it um, over the past sort of, to when, whenever it gets read, it proves enormously controversial. And the reason it's controversial is because it's seen as being a sort of state or even sort of meta-state intervention into what should be private life. So it's sort of the, the state kind of stepping into the home, the kind of domestic space. Mm-hmm. Of course, we know that the family is an institution 
and a social institution at that, an ideological institution, if I can go further, um, no less than anything else. But there is a kind of an idea that it should be self-regulating, that any uh, that it should have its own kind of internal authority subscribed to, and that should be sacrosanct and not interfered with from kind of figures from outside um, that do inhabit this kind of political sphere. So there's a clear sense. I think what motivates it is the sense that the division between public and private should be honoured and respected and, you know, parents should have more authority over their parents, over their children, rather, than uh, any body or any institution outside the immediate precincts of the family. Mm -hmm. And this, it's itself is something I think that you do find in um, earlier periods. There's a, a sort of an odd tendency that starts to emerge in the 15th century amongst, in pedagogic discourse in particular in England, um, which defines um, pedagogic uh, punishment uh, as being more effective than punishment within the household. Uh, um, I don't, I don't know if you come across, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the writer. Um, he's one of Richard Mulcaster's pupils at the Merchant okay. Taylor School in the 16th century. Thomas, is it Thomas Fuller? Thomas Fuller, perhaps? Okay. Well, I'll have to. Uh, that's something to, to fact check, I think. Um, but he has a kind of series of reminiscences about um, Mulcaster and the way that he used to run his classroom. And one. One of the things that he uh, mentions is that um, Mulcaster was quite happy to beat his students at the smallest pretext, and he beat them all the harder if he received a note from the mother saying, can you please lay off my son for a few days? That would yeah. have the exactly opposite effect. You know, how dare she, how very dare she uh, try to dictate to me how I ought to behave in my classroom. And um, there's other instances of this as well. There's um, the... Uh, there's a series of French to English dialogues drawn up by Claudius Holliband in the mid-16th century as well, where, um, I mean, this is a series of translation exercises. So, you know, this is, this is the teacher talking, talking immediately to the students. And one of the dialogues is a pupil coming to school carrying a ring from his father. Um, and the ring is supposed to prove that the pupil is, is late because uh, it was uh, his, fa his father's fault rather than the boy's fault himself. So he produces this ring as kind of a show of that to the tutor in this dialogue, and the, and the tutor sort of says, I'm going to hit you all the harder. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this idea that once that there is a kind of contest between parental authority and the master's authority in the schoolroom, that, um, that once the child is within that space, they have to have kind of parental influence, which is, of course, irrational and guided by love and affection and all these things that need to be, because they are irrational and emotional, kind of stripped away from the proper masculine subject. That, there has to be that kind of separation observed, and observed through sort of beating, through kind of corporal punishment as well. So I think that that kind of friction, that sort of fault line, actually, again, it has a, it, it's different and it's sort of taken on a new form. But again, it is, it is kind of born out of that sense of rivalry, that the, the school and the family are not raising the child in the same way 
but they represent kind of different models and different hierarchies and different um, sort of schemata into which the child is accommodated. And the two are kind of almost competing over the child, the school being the kind of rational, unaffectionate sort of space where emotion doesn't intrude, the house, the home, the household being the space in which children are raised with this kind of contaminating effects of fatherly and particularly motherly affection, sort of softening them up. So it's going the other way, I think. I think now the sort of um, liberal democracy is the soft touch and really what's, you know, the defence of uh, corporal punishment in the home is born out of the sense that children still need it. But again, it's that kind of rivalry merely inverted rather than actually, I'd say, kind of a completely new form of being an entirely new thing. If that makes any sort of sense. Uh, it, 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 it very much makes sense. One of the most stunning things that Agamben points out in his Homo Sasser series of books, that what you're talking about is that there's a, a very, very old idea, and it's not mm. only in Greek, but the gr- Greek is an example, that there's a Greek word for life that's Zoe, and that's bear yeah. life. And mm-hmm. that's where the child has been located and is still located in some sense, that bear life yeah. is a, a pre-political or non-political sphere as opposed to bios. Mm. Bios is life also. Bios is in the, the political and the social. Part of what's happening in the conflict or one way to read that conflict between the master and the parent is that they're both positioning the child as if they have sort of an originary sovereign bond to them. Indeed, yeah. Which yeah. is outside of, of bios, which is prior yeah. to the Greek concept of bios or the Greek concept of polis or politics. The inversion that you're speaking about happens because in the early modern period, there is a politicization of bare life. I think so. This has been great, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Ben Parsons on childhood history and critique, recorded in May 2015 for the Society for the History of Children and Youth.